Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back. George Norrie with you. We're with Dr. Thomas Cohen, and we're talking about his latest work, Cancer and the New Biology of Water. We'll get into vaccines and the human heart a little bit later on in the program as well. Thomas, back to this uh, so-called gel. So if we understand it, what is, what is science saying about this right now? Uh, science mostly tries to ignore it because they hmm. uh, basically don't understand it and uh, don't get the significance. If they could, they'd sure be able to make some uh, inroads into fighting cancer, wouldn't they? Yeah, and like I say, you know, the MRI um, basically proves that, again, to say it very simply, the MRI is measuring the coherence or the structure of water. When they see the structure of water deteriorate, that shows up as a cancer. Now, why that doesn't lead conventional oncology and science to say, I wonder what the conditions are that lead to structured water in the cell or lead to the destruction of structured water, uh, I don't know. But it's very clear that's what the problem is. And I think, as I pointed out in the book, the imperative is to try to understand, you know, how the water gets structured, what are the components, and what leads to the destruction of water, of the gel in the water, in the cytoplasm, which is basically the, you know, that's the whole shebang. Now, you talk about a six-point program. Talk to us about that, Tom. You know, the, the main thing here uh, is, is to get into, you know, what, what, what structures the water. I, I think before the programs, and it, it's just to get the basic concept. And so the way that I try to explain this is to ask your listeners to picture the following. So picture a beaker of water, and then you suspend a horizontal hydrophilic tube in that water. Now, whenever there's a horizontal, whenever there's a hydrophilic tube in water, it will tend to form a gel on the lining of the tube. And this is very measurable. You can measure the pH changes in the gel as compared to the liquid water. And you can also measure the voltage. And the reason you can measure the voltage is because all of these gels are negatively charged. And because they, co- they collect electrons in the gel, they also push the protons, the positive charges, into the water. So if you can picture this, you have a tube that's negatively charged with positive protons in the middle. And the positive protons, they repel each other and they start the water in the tube flowing. So you can measure the strength of the gel, and the strength of the gel, like I said, determines the voltage of the cell. It determines whether the cell is alive. And you can see what things influence the movement of the water. You can see what things increase or decrease voltage. And essentially, my whole therapeutic program it essentially comes out of that. So, for instance, you take this uh, beaker of water with the tube in it, and you put it in a lead box, and the, and the flow stops. Because there needs to be an energy source from the outside that essentially charges up the gels. So you take it out of the lead box, and you shine it in the sun. You shine the sun on it, and the flow will start. 
which means that the energy of the sun can be an effective uh, energy source for the charging of your gels. And then you put that, uh, the beaker on the earth, and the electromagnetic field from the earth also charges the, the water, charges, creates the gel, and creates flow. You can also put your hands on it, and there's an electromagnetic field from our hands, which donates energy, donates electrons into the, into the system, into the water. The water is a receptor for all this, and that creates flow. And then, interestingly, you put your cell phone next to it, and the cell phone, the radiation from an electromagnetic field from a cell phone, a wireless device, stops the flow and destructures the gel. It uh, inhibits the formation of voltage, which is how nerves function and how cells charge themselves to create their distance so they don't clump together to form tumors. And you can see that there's a whole lot of factors in our environment that end up destructuring the water, and there's a whole lot of factors that end up structuring the water. And the more you do the factors that structure the water, the less cancer you'll get, and the more voltage you'll have, the more energy you'll have, the more nerve function you'll have. That's also the way that the blood flows in the body, because we have capillaries that have that are hydrophilic and they have water in the form of blood in it, they create a, a, essentially a charge and the protons in the water, the positive charges repel each other and create flow in the, in the blood. So this is the basis of life that I'm talking about, which unfortunately is not very recognized in modern biology or medicine. Now with your program, of course, if you stick to it, what are the odds of never getting cancer? I have no idea because <laughs> <laughs> because that's never been done, and that would be a wild guess. Uh, but I can tell you that as we go on, we we're all exposed more and more to these, you know, influences. Particularly, wireless radiation is one. Sure. Uh, toxins in the environment, toxins that come through vaccines. We know that that aluminum destructures your water. In, in fact, you can see the whole fever response, you know, because the way I think of it is something like I always ask myself the question, what would I do if I was this body? So what I'm saying is that the, the gel phase in your cytoplasm, it, that creates the charge, that creates the distance between cells so they don't clump together. That actually, we know from research that the gel water in in around the DNA actually tells the DNA how to express itself. So that so that gel phase water goes right down into the expression of the DNA. This is this is the basis of life. So so the reason I got into the childhood illness too is he say, so what, what would happen if somebody dissolved some poison in your gel? And if you want to think about this, it would be like dissolving a bad grape in your jello. And so you have to get the bad grape out of your jello. So what would you do? You would heat up the jello, you would make it run. And then once you eliminated the bad grape, you would reconstitute a more healthy gel. A more healthy jello. So that's exactly what humans do when they get sick. 
they have poisons dissolved in their cell, you know, toxins. Um, they have to get rid of it in order to have this, you know, energetic state that's called health. So they create a fever that heats up the gel. The gel runs. That's called mucus. We eliminate the mucus, and then we reconstitute and, you know, recover our health. So that's exactly what we see with acute illness. And that also tells you why that hyperthermia or, you know, heating the body is an effective cancer medicine. What does it do? It heats the gels, the gels run, they detoxify, they reconstitute in a better form, and then you're, you're overall better. So you can start to see that actually, you know, the history of sweat lodges and the history of fever therapy and Hippocrates saying, give me a medicine to create a fever and I can cure any disease. Suddenly, through this lens, it all starts to make sense. Would you be considered a rebel doctor now among your peers? I would think you would have to ask them, but I certainly have views of health and medicine that are not in the mainstream. Not conventional, but you know what? A lot of people, not medical people, but a lot of people probably would agree with you. Uh, I, I, I think there's thousands and maybe millions. Let's talk a little bit about your other work, and then we'll uh, circle back to some of this uh, vaccines, autoimmunity. It's probably one of the most controversial areas for parents, Tom, and that's whether to vaccine their children or not. Um, A lot of people have heard the dangers of vaccines and the possibility they could create autism. Uh, Tough decision for a parent to make. Tell me about your thoughts. So the basic, the basic thought, and the thing that never comes up in conversation, which is why I take this conversation to a different place, is what does it mean to have an immune system? And the first thing I tell my patients is we don't have an immune system. We have two immune systems. And in order for you to understand vaccines and whether to vaccinate or not, you have to understand this. So here's the way it works. Let's take an example like chickenpox. So this is a virus, and let's say you're a child and you've never encountered it before. So you, get in, you encounter the virus. It gets into the cytoplasm of your cells, this watery part. Your, your body can't tolerate distorted cytoplasm because that's basically your, the, the foundation of life. So it, it makes a cell-mediated response to eliminate these, these infected cells. Now, the important point to realize here is that a cell-mediated response, and it's so-called because it's based on the white blood cells, the job is to digest and eliminate those infected cells. And the important point of that is that which we call being sick, meaning fever, rash, mucus, cough, etc., that's because of the activity of the cell-mediated immune system. It's not the virus. It's the virus stimulates a cell-mediated response. And I know that because if you inhibit the cell-mediated response, you can kill the person, but they'll never be, quote, sick. So that cell-mediated response happens for about 7 to 10 days. You've now cleared the virus, and you reconstitute normal cells. Then, because you don't want to go through chickenpox, you know, every month for the rest of your life, 
you you call on the second arm of your immune system called the antibody or humoral immune system and that part makes antibodies to one of the pieces of chickenpox so that if you ever encounter it again you will not get sick from chickenpox because you'll never need to use your cell mediated immune system the important point of that is there are no symptoms when you have a humoral response you don't feel sick or anything so that is how humans uh, interacted with pathogens for you know millennia. Mm-hmm. You have these two arms. First, you get sick, that clears the virus. Then you remember what happened, and that's always the way it worked. And when that happens, you have immunity for life. That's until vaccines. The whole purpose of a vaccine is to bypass the cell-mediated part, because that's the part that, quote, makes you sick, and only make you make antibodies. There's two things to say about that. The first is you will never have lifelong immunity by only stimulating antibodies. That's proven by the fact that we need boosters. And the second thing is if you continue with a strategy of essentially upregulating or stimulating your antibody response and and continually downregulating your cell mediated response the only expected outcome you'll have is you'll have an overstimulated humoral antibody response now if you say what is the definition of an autoimmune disease the definition is somebody with too many antibodies what is asthma that's somebody with an overactive antibody response What are allergies, food allergies, environmental allergies? That's somebody with an overactive antibody response. We know that autism and neurodevelopmental problems are people who have overactive inflammatory responses based on the activity of of antibodies in their nervous system. So the obvious question here is how come we have 150 million people in the United States with too many antibodies. And without trying to be a smart aleck about it, I would say that was the whole point of the vaccine program. It worked. And and it worked and it was commendable at the time, wasn't it? It was what? Was it commendable at the time when they thought it was going to help? No. No. Tell me why. I'll I'll tell you exactly why. So if you go to the most cited paper in vaccine history uh, about how well did vaccines work, it's a paper published in the Journal of the AMA 2007 by a guy who was a senior scientist at the CDC named Rausch. So the paper is called Rausch et al. And that's, again, the most cited paper in the history of vaccines. He said, for instance, that as a in the pre and post vaccine era just take one example the death rate from measles went down 97% which sounds great you know it does sure measles 97% now if you go and read the paper which most doctors probably didn't but i did what you found and i'll simplify the numbers a little bit in 1920, the death rate from measles was 100 per 100,000. In 1960, it was 3 per 100,000. So that's a 97% decline. The, the, the 
hitch of the story is the vaccine was introduced in 1963. That's two years, three years after the death after, rate after the decline had dropped to to three three percent, and then it continued at around two percent for the next decade or so. What caused the drop without the vaccine? So that's a good question, but before I answer that, I'm just going to point out, Rausch is technically correct. If you look at 1965 compared to 1920, there was a pre- and post-vaccine drop of 97%. However, 99% of that drop happened before there was vaccines. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the same, and I guarantee if you look at the research, you can bear me, back me up on this. It's the same for diphtheria. It's the same for whooping cough. It's the same for all the vaccinatable diseases. They all come from that study. All of them, the death rate dropped before the vaccine was introduced dramatically. So the answer to your question, so what happened? Let me just say it like this. I don't know. And why don't I know? Because nobody bothered to investigate it. But obviously something happened, something and it was happened. dramatic. Right. Maybe it was, uh, it, was, it was the population got used to the uh, virus. Maybe it was because we realized that if you give children vitamin A, they almost never die of any viral illness. Maybe it was because we stopped pooping in the streets. Maybe it's because we stopped having children drink milk from swill cattle in New York City, which were fed on basically, you know, brewery waste. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why. Um, but the interesting thing about this debate is that would be a very interesting and fruitful study to see what actually happened. Oh, my God, that would be amazing. Right. Why don't they do it? They say that it's with the vaccines, even though... The CDC evidence uh, of this, if you look at the chart, the, dr- the drop was 97% before, two years before there was even a vaccine. And your numbers don't lie. And the numbers don't lie. And they're not my numbers, and they're not some, you know, these are from the official studies by the CDC published in DRAMA. So, you know, I always say to people, so let's say I don't know, even though it's very interesting, and I would love to know, but that doesn't change the facts. The facts is that's not why it, it reduced. And anybody who disputes that, I would love to see the numbers, because I can guarantee there are no numbers out there. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.